Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Womanhood and International Relations Podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla. And for today's episode, we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Kirthi Yaya Kumar, peace educator, lawyer, and founder of the Gender Security Project. Kirthi, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Oh, Natalia, it is a joy being here. I have admired all the work that you do. I listen to your episodes in fact, no longer on speaker, actually loud for my whole family. It's become a morning ritual. We're doing our morning chores. We're cooking oh, together <laughs> and we're listening to you. Um, so I'm actually, I, I just restarted because now my dad also wants to listen in. So oh, I restarted all the way from the first episode that's there on Spotify. And thank you truly for featuring me. <laughs> thank you so much, Kirthi. I'm so, so excited to talk with you. And, you know, it's also an honor to be listening in your own country in India I'm so so like stoked by having you here and so excited to talk about so many issues because your work is so inspiring and I want to invite our listeners to first know you know what the gender security project is as the founder can you share with us what your organization does and you know what inspired you to do this research of course. Well, thank you so much for this space, Natalia, to share and to talk about the Gender Security Project. Um, I always describe since the inception, the Gender Security Project as my pandemic baby, because I founded it just when the pandemic began officially. Uh, and the whole story behind it is before I started and run, ran the Gender Security Project, I ran a nonprofit in India called the Red Elephant Foundation. And my work with that used to be one of a peace educator and to work with survivors of gender-based violence in finding help and resources. Now, one of the things I noticed was at the grassroots, there's a deep desire to change and to be that change, whether it is in fighting hatred, whether it is in choosing nonviolence over violence, whether it's in choosing to see a human in another person. And there was some kind of a disconnect that was happening between the grassroots and the policy level that at the policy level, um, human beings ceased to exist as human beings. They were just passive objects of policy making. And I was also at the time as a Commonwealth scholar doing my master's at Coventry University by a blended learning program. And I realized that all of the scholars I was reading and quoting for Women, Peace and Security, which was the concentration I was focusing on, were either white or were diaspora women from the Global South. They were not women living and working in the Global South. And this sort of made me go digging deeper. And I realized that so much of what's happening in the Global South by women and for women is practice. And this is exactly why there's been such a big gap because colonization noticed the practice and chose to document the practice, which meant that we were always treated as zoo animals. And we were busy practicing that we didn't care so much to document. So we have whole swaths of history with women who've done things before women in the West have done it. But now you have good night stories for rebel girls with white women in it, as though they were the pioneers of it all. And that made me angry. And long story short, the intention was to present the women, peace and security agenda in feminist foreign policy, but from a global south lens. Uh, it is a bit of an ambitious thing. I admit that as like one woman in India claiming to 
do this for all of the global south but um the intention is to seed space and to open up this space for the global south to find uh if not this space at least room to make more of these spaces on their own just like what you're doing Kirthi I think that task is a uh, very very ambitious and very very important nowadays and I want to um ask you particularly what is your own perception and definition of postcolonial views and also the global south like how can you define the global south as a political project as you know people that are living in specific geographic zones can you share with us um you know your own views from there so we can start you know having a base to work on Well I must start by confessing that I'm very ignorant about the academics of this all so some of what I say at this point can be can sound ridiculous and I apologize unconditionally to the scholars listening in this podcast and the scholar in you as well Natalia um but I personally don't believe that post colonial has come to bear because colonial has not ended and so I have a bit of a challenge accepting that we are at a point where we say we have the post colonial feminist view in place because colonialism is still extracting still occupying still practicing apartheid still normalizing discrimination the very fact that women like you and I have to do this as um a side hustle if you will while we're still hustling to put money in our banks is very much evidence that colonialism is alive and kicking So that said I would say that the anti-colonial has existed and continues to exist and the very fact that this conversation is happening in the colonizer's tongue but between two women of color who want to subvert that is very reflective of what our ancestors have done and continue to do through so many of us which is not to mean that we don't occupy privilege you and I do in some ways and also not in some ways uh so i guess to that extent then the global south for me is a very amorphous shapeless being it is not about the countries that we occupy um because there is a global south that is even more global south within the global south if you will um and within the global north there is a global south as well over there there are indigenous people who are situated over there so i would call it um the last mile of humanity rather than a geographic connotation rather than a project that looks at cartographic considerations i would look at it as the last mile that has continued to be oppressed and disadvantaged by colonialism colonization and remains the body or the playground on which white systemic oppression thrives um so to that end i think that anywhere in the world that people of color people who have been disenfranchised marginalized oppressed sidelined and hurt and harmed by the white supremacy project as it is represent some form of the global south and the very fact that they are at the bottom part of the pecking order that's the geography i'm thinking about the north represents the the hierarchy and the ones below that are bearing the pressure of that hierarchy's existence are the global south in terms of you know post colonial and anti colonial conversation um just to clarify how are we perhaps in the global south or in the global north still colonized like what are some examples perhaps in our way of thinking about international relations or in the way that we reproduce knowledge of international relations or we publish articles or 
make any analysis or join panel discussions? Like, can you share with us some examples that we may be perhaps colonized still? <laughs> 100%. I mean, some examples that stand out are still on the nose. The very fact that, for example, here in India, I come from a country whose penal legislation goes back to the British. It's 1860. The Indian Penal Code was formed then. But um, the very fact that we have not questioned that, we have not revised, completely revised the penal code for what it is, shows that the systems and structures we continue to deal with are deeply colonial. But in the everyday of it, our existence being a subversion of the systems in itself shows that we're constantly Um, again, this is a bit of a military language, so I apologize for that, but we're constantly being convoked into a war of sorts with the systems and the structures that exist, right? Now, let's think about how knowledge is produced and reproduced. What is accepted as knowledge? The very fact that it's a peer-reviewed academic paper, but then that's using language that is far out of reach for me. I know that when I was consuming so much of that literature, I had a dictionary with me all the time, and sometimes I had to go out to see a different dictionary because The dictionary I was using didn't have the words that were there in it. Um, and this is for somebody who has learned, who has studied English for 14 years of her life in school and then five years of her life at college with law school. Um, what about people who don't have even that much of English training, right? From there, we're also constantly forced to demonstrate functional knowledge of English that I have to pay several dollars to take a TOEFL test or several pounds to take an IELTS just so that they will consider my application, which I fill out in English, the essays which I submit in English, the transcripts which I submit in English. I mean, we're just so much, we're just so, I want to say, surrounded and confined by colonial structures and systems. So in the production of knowledge, we're sort of unconsciously normalizing that. Um, how, how often have you gone to maybe a bookstore and felt that you would pick up a book that is evidently by a renowned publisher, but not so easily a self-published piece of work. How how often do we cite scholars because these are the names that have popped up for us ever so often instead of going looking be between the lines? How often have we prioritized a Google Scholar PDF over a well-crafted blog post? How often do we dismiss podcasts? Like conversations like these I mean, I don't want to put myself in the bracket of intellectual capacity to the extent that you have centered in, in the podcast. But those are sites of learning and those are such democratized, decentralized sites of learning that I don't have to pay a fee to sit in a university to get that quality of wisdom and knowledge. Um, and at the same time, it is disheartening that I don't have to pay a fee to get that knowledge. It's coming on the back of a woman of color. Uh, everything I share at this point is just deeply reflective of how colonized the order is itself, Natalia. The fact that a journal that is publishing and printing pieces of work in the UK or the US or in Western Europe will ask you to pay a fee just for the piece to be reviewed and possibly rejected versus a blog that is run by one woman who has a vision for a future that is peaceful. We're constantly normalizing that colonial divide. We're prioritizing what I said in the former over the latter, even though the latter is documented lived experience that is indisputable because it is fact. So, yeah, I think we're deeply colonial in ourselves without knowing it. 
that's um topic very heavy to reflect upon because you know listening to you i i also find traces of that coloniality in my own journey in the international relations like i do come from a colony i'm from puerto rico and we're still a colony of the united states but you know when i wanted to study international relations the first thing that you know was said to me is that I needed to study abroad because we didn't have a proper, you know, BA or bachelor's degree or even master's degree at the university level here in Puerto Rico, like higher education on IR. We only had like the political science, um, you know, master or, or degree. Um, so we could take electives of international relations subjected that we knew English well because the authors that we needed to read were in English. So you needed to have, you know, the first language barrier, you know, in Puerto Rico, Spanish is the uh, official language. Although some may say it's Spanglish because we have, you know, a very distinct type of Spanish where we mix with English words, you know, part of also being a colony. Um, but the, the fact that I needed to read authors in the English language and how well you read or you express or you speak um, you know, in the English or write about it for an essay is crucial in order to get good grades or in order to get, you know, ahead, you know, uh, for a job post or for a higher education degree. But then also in my master's, something that I found is that you needed to quote certain authors in order for your professors that were giving you a grade, you know, gave you like a good you know, like a good nod, you know, like if you are not quoting, like, for example, if in realism, if you're not quoting X, Y, Z, then you did not know about realism at all. Like you're bad, you know, like you need to talk about this specific person and, you know, uh, quote him constantly or quote her. But, you know, it's a manly, <laughs> a manly world still. Um, and, you know, most of the time we need to quote these specific authors coming from the United States or from Europe. Because if we did not quote him, then it's like for the professor, we didn't know anything at all. You know, like, and that's bad. <laughs> that's very, very bad. I have to agree. I have to agree. You know, on this point, um, interestingly, when I was talking to somebody I went to university with, um, and I was telling him about how I set up the gender security project. And his first question was, really, I mean, you're sitting in Chennai, an obscure city in India, and you want to comment about world affairs. But the very thought that he didn't think that his colleagues could sit in an obscure part of the United States and then comment on world affairs. Why is global citizenship normalized for white people, but not for people of color? I, I just don't understand it. And also like the pressure for those of us that do not fit the normal stereotype of, you know, an intellectual or an IR scholar, you know, legitimized by the eyes of whoever, um, you know, the, the, the fact that as women as well, we are in a manly dominated field talking about war or talking about peace or talking about terrorism or, you know, these hard power quote unquote, um, stereotypical fields um, is also very difficult. Like the moment that you start as a woman focusing on terrorism, you know, in this field or on security or on nuclear weapons or, you know, want to talk about war, then suddenly you experience a lot of rejection, a lot of um, 
imposter syndrome. <laughs> and also, you know, a lot of backlash because you have more eyes on you and more pressure on you to deliver and to, oh, so you came to this field, so try to prove it to us. And I find it very damaging that we are not allowed to discover our voice and our way of thinking the moment that we start you know at a university level this field um because we are subjected to reproduce already the knowledge assist the existing knowledge because if we decide to create new one then it's bad and you know that's the one thing that i um appreciate of having studied in the in the united kingdom that i don't appreciate from studying in the united states <laughs> because the u.s system of education is very prone to who's right who's wrong and you know like th these are fixed answers like you have to say specifically what everybody's saying in order to get a good grade but in the uk at least in my experience at the university that i went Um, my professors were encouraging critical thinking. They were not expecting me to be, you know, saying what was the textbook saying. They were like, what do you think about it? And trying to form an opinion about it and trying to bring arguments to sustain that opinion, but don't talk to me or don't reproduce what the textbook said. And that opened my eyes a lot. And, you know, they also allowed me to choose something different, which was another theory in international relations that's not realist or liberalist you know like I wanted to study constructivism and I was allowed I was not allowed to study feminist theory but I was allowed to study constructivism because also you know they gain from it you know the universities gain from having that specific knowledge also being created so they can have whatever it is um I'm, I'm diverging <laughs> What I'm, what I'm trying to say is, you know, I, I wonder for those that are listening, you know, what has been your own experience in this field the moment that you start studying it? Because we we may be trained to think a certain way in order to be legitimized, in order to gain power or recognition or a job or, <laughs> you know, a good networking or be accepted in specific circles of knowledge production or reproduction. And, you know, I want to go once again, go back to the work that you do at the Gender Security Project, because one of the main highlights that I found in your platform is that you have a diversity of rep representation, a diversity of voices of women that are not scared to think outside the norm and to offer arguments that are I have not seen yet, you know, in other platforms, you know, talking about international relations as well as gender. Or how do you bring this voice together to offer this in a revolutionary way in these type of times wow that's <laughs> that's a very generous uh, reading of the gender security project and its offerings Natalia thank you so much for that um, now I want to start by being a bit brutally honest here um, when I started it out my colleague Vaishnavi and I we were the ones that were constantly writing we used to write the pieces so every other day it was Kirti Vaishnavi Kirti Vaishnavi or Kirti 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 Vaishnavi 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 but um, a point came when of course we were dealing with a global pandemic and somewhere or the other the pandemic had to come home and I felt really sick 
Um, I it, This was also at the time when the pandemic was such a big issue in India. I think it was also globally picked up about how many deaths were happening. And it was a very scary time. I live with my parents and my brother and all of us fell sick together at the same time. And it was harsh. Recovery was painful. Um, watching your loved ones fall sick when you can't, you know, be physically fit to help them uh, was also very devastating. So at this point, what I, what I noticed was happening was I either had to give myself attention to recover and, of course, my family, or I had to just push through and still keep writing. Now, old me, the deeply, heavily colonized, hustling, capitalistic me would have continued to push and write no matter what. But this time I thought to myself, I need to keep this alive. I need to keep the voices alive. The space needs to be the space I nurtured it to be. It doesn't matter if I am the only writer, but I can take some time off from it. So at this point, I started looking for collaborations. I reached out to organizations that were willing to cross-post their pieces that had syndicate wire service options. So the IPS post is one and the Global Observatory is another. But what I noticed, Natalia, was that so many of the articles that were being picked up from these wire services were the more prominent ones, were the ones that were already talking to what the global headlines were saying. So the Eurocentric pieces, the US pieces were being picked up, but not the pieces about an indigenous group in India or um, a group of women in the Congolese region that wanted to subvert so many forms of violence they were facing. So that's when I realized that this site had so many pieces that were not being picked up as they rightly should. And that's when I started sort of bringing those pieces into the gender security project. Now, this was a beautiful experiment because the audience that had built up, including some amazing people such as yourself, were willing to receive this content wholesomely. And so it was just a matter of making that delightfully sacred marriage happen, if you will, and bring that um cross-pollination. I want to say that my ambition is to go beyond this, to be able to have enough money to pay everybody who wants to write, and to also move out of the systems of writing that we have normalized. So I don't know if you've had a chance to see this on our website, but we did a four-post series of just memes. We wrote op-eds with just memes. Um, and the memes were very pointed. We had some really rude things to say to colonizers and capitalists, and we love it. Uh, but we realized that the whole idea of subverting writing in itself felt so beautifully cathartic. We were saying things using pop culture, using memes that are very specific to India, uh, to the ethos that we are used to, but it conveyed a very universal message. So there were um, one thing that I'm trying to explore is how can we bring art? How can we bring um bodily forms of documentation, right? Like if I am dressing a certain way, if fashion is my statement against capitalism, can we bring a way to document that on a platform like this for the world to see? So I'm still experimenting with some of that. Uh, one area that I'm personally jumping into is astronomical art. And the intention behind that is to, I'll keep this super quick so I don't digress too much, but the intention behind this is to present outer space for what it truly has meant for indigenous populations forever. Um, I know for a fact that my grandmother grew up with a childhood that involved looking into the skies to decide what time of year it was or to decide whether the grass would turn a certain color or to, to know what the tide would be like. 
that that space is now being colonized by the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musks of the world. And indigenous communities are constantly being disconnected from the fundamental frontiers that sustain their lives. So that's my current site of exploration. I'm trying to move away from space law and space policy, which are serving colonizers, and looking at it as truly the, the common heritage of humankind, that we have to learn to be respectful and watch from a distance instead of polluting. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's my current exploration to decolonize our approach to even consuming and producing content. In Latin America and the Caribbean, um, I've met several female colleagues in this field that, you know, publish a lot of articles in blogs, as well as in websites, very renowned websites of think tanks and, you know, magazines in the United States, as well as in Europe. And they do it in their second language, English, which is considered, you know, the international language. Um, and they still feel that if they don't follow suit with the line of thought from the U.S. Uh, public opinion or, you know, think tank um, um, line of thought over any specific issue, then they will not be published or they will get shunned or they will be mocked about or not considered serious by their counterparts or their peers. That's the better word, by their peers. And there's a lot of fear, at least that I've found, in showing what they truly or or publishing what they truly think about a specific issue because it's as if their views would not be considered valuable by the editors of these platforms or by the think tanks that are inviting them. What it, what are your views on this specific pattern? And from your point of view of your work, um, have your collaborators found uh, freedom in sharing their point of view in your platform that perhaps they have not found elsewhere? Yeah, wow. Now, that was such a beautifully articulated set of thoughts and a question, then, Natalia. Thank you for that. I want to start by saying that um, it is a very difficult project to choose to step away from the beaten path because, like you said, it's your first sort of roadblock is the system choosing to cancel you. And the system is so powerful that it can eat you up before you've even made a whimper. Um, and yet there is a certain beauty in that chaos as well that I personally have found. And and by this, I don't mean to say that everybody has a moral duty, none of that rubbish. Uh, nobody has a moral duty uh, to sort of subvert this system. You basically do you. For me personally, the point of me doing me and just choosing to throw the system out the window, if you will, came from a very conscious point of understanding that I have gone through 18 years of my life facing different forms of violence at the hands of this system, right? From silent, you know, pushing people away, elbowing people away kind of violence to overt being physically beaten up. Now, what is it that the system has not already taken from me that it's going to take away from me afresh, right? And that's been my motivation behind creating an alternative. And in my mind, perceiving that alternative as the norm. So if I'm going to read Al Jazeera or the BBC or 
foreign policy or CFR, I'm going to think of that as the alternative to a feminist view. And that's been the approach that I have followed. Now, what has this meant for me in the organizational space? It has meant for me doing away with the idea of deadlines. So if you come to me and you say, hey, I want to write about this. And I say, okay, I have this space. I don't have the money to pay you for it, but I can pay you with skills. I can mentor you. I can write a reference letter for you, or I can open doors to connections that you might want to have from my social capital. Um, if that works for you, then please feel free to write. But now let's say you say to me that you want to turn in the piece next week. I don't believe in coming after you saying, hey, it stopped being topical now. So you've got to change your topic. I don't care for any of that. The issue has been topical. If it has been topical for you, even for a second, it has left a mark on you and you have something to say. So deadline cultures do not exist for me. Editing is not, um, the only thing I edit for uh, is facts. So if you're making a completely baseless argument that has no grounding in fact, I will make an edit there and I will point it out to you and say, look, this is the issue. I do not edit for typos. I do not edit for grammar. And I stoutly refuse for, to edit capitalization. Uh, this has been a lot of times people have said, oh, the quality of the writing in the platform needs to be better. And then I say to them, well, this is me mentally showing you a middle finger for prioritizing form over content, because the content that has come in has come in from a place of deep subversion. They're willing to talk to you about something that hurts them so deeply in a language you understand you jolly well can make a few adjustments in accepting a bunch of typos or grammatical mistakes. It is also an attempt to understand that there are multiple Englishes, and so many of those Englishes are children of trauma. Uh, the very fact that a person stands up and speaks in a language that is not their own is a leap of faith. They are, they're forcing their mind to think in ways that censor their true energy and true wholesome language owning selves just to be able to fit into the system and what the system expects of them, wherever you are, right? I, I mean, I, I say English a lot because we were colonized by the British, uh, so many of whom are surprised that we speak good English after sitting here for 300 years and not like orchestrating this big mess, not even completing our railways, if you will. But <laughs> it's, it's um, astounding to me that we can normalize a culture where a human being's output Mm -hmm. that you can reduce to monetary terms is more important than the human, the pain the human is putting into making that piece possible, and what that even writing that piece can take away from that human. So with all of this in mind, sometimes there have been people who have just come back saying that they felt deeply safe, knowing that they could put a piece out there in my hands and leave that on the platform. And there have been some who have said that it challenged them to be met with somebody who said, I don't care for deadlines. I don't care for edits. I care for your voice. And it put them in a place of feeling deeply frightened because they didn't know where to start. So that was a big moment of introspection for me because I realized that my anti-system was producing harm as well because it was fighting with the traumas that the system had invested. Wow. So yeah, a lot of wow. thinking. <laughs> How did you come to realize that it was trauma? Conversations, Natalia. Conversations. By choosing to see the human in them and not... So when somebody writes to you saying, hey, this really made me shocked and scared because I, I'm confronting thoughts and I'm not holding back those thoughts. Um, and I didn't think I had those thoughts as well. 
So I ask them if they'd be open to engaging, to really talking through it. And if not, it's perfectly fine. Nine out of 10 times, they've been happy to engage. And each time, the first thing that comes out is, this goes against everything I have been taught. And you know that that's the system holding you over here on your head tight, and you're trying to run out from under its grasp, and that's trauma speaking. So, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not uh, qualified medically or psychiatrically to say that this is trauma in that sense, but uh, enough colonial impacts have been felt by me and my mom and my grandmom and my great-grandmom's generations for me to tangibly say that it's trauma. But also as a peace educator yourself, you know, like there's also that knowledge of where violence is present, you know, like it's, it's, it's part of the way that knowledge is being taught in different spheres of power, you know, it's not being taught through nonviolence communication, it's, through, it, it's taught through violence mm -hmm. and even feminisms. You know, the way that feminisms are taught and, you know, go through advocacy or is part of activism and, you know, can be violent too. You know, violence is present. Um, I want to go through the different curated collections that in your website you feature because I found them very interesting to explore. You bring many topics that from the subversive diaries to the gender and the COVID-19 pandemic to also feminist foreign policy, how to understand it. And I loved your series because you bring so many plural voices of different parts of the world that come from consider quote unquote global south and they are also different types of profiles which are not necessarily academic and I also like that you know like you had activists you have researchers you have professors you have you know people that are from different advocacy groups you know it's not particularly you know a scholar writing an article for the academia um How do you pick these topics for curated collections? Uh, I mean, it might seem when you see the website that there is a method to the madness, but I want to start by saying that there is a lot of madness and the method comes out on its own, um, which I think speaks to how how much things eventually order themselves out when you leave them to just order themselves out, right? So one thing that I have come to understand is that in the quote-unquote global south, every woman is an agent and an actor in foreign policy. Whether that is women in the unorganized sector working for a multinational corporation here in India, and you have a lot of that in Tamil Nadu, the state in which I live, or it is two women speaking on Zoom, recording a podcast or planning a video series where, Natalia, I can't wait for you to feature in the next video series and curating. Um, I have to say that, <laughs> but it, it is, we are constantly actors and agents in foreign policy. We're shaping foreign policy. We're daring to talk about things that nobody wants to let us talk about in the official circles. The tables are tiny. The fences are high. So people like you and I will never fit into that. We don't wear suits and we're not white. Um, that said, We are decentralizing this. We're finding new ways to mobilize. We're finding new ways to articulate. And we're finding new means and avenues to express ourselves. So 
in that sense, it is not at all difficult to find people with a lot to say. Um, of course, academics and um, people in the policy space are your go-to because they're more visible. They're the ones that are seen to be the knowledge makers and keepers. But um, recently in, in Chennai, one of my closest friends, she's produced a play called The Mobile Girls Kutam, which I can spell out for you. Kutam in Tamil basically means a gang or a crowd of people. Now, this speaks about the stories of women who were working in a multinational corporation to assemble mobile phones. Um, and they would talk about so many things they were dealing with in their everyday lives. Now, for the system, they're just blue collar workers, unorganized sector, women who are not literate, women who are just making a daily wage. But these are women on whose bodies foreign policy, trade and the economy lives and thrives. These are the women in the last mile who are given minimum wage, but are the reason that the biggest companies continue to strive, thrive. Sisters of these women face violence in countries like the Congo, where minerals are extracted from their land, while they are subjected to sexual violence. So what I'm trying to say over here is that this entire edifice of capitalism, of um Colonialism has continued to thrive on the bodies of women from the global south. Um, now, we know that. We know this to be true. So is it then difficult to find faces and voices among us that are speaking the truths to power? Not at all. Which is largely why um, reaching out to these women is not impossible. And that said... The topics speak for themselves. They're lived experiences. If somebody is talking about sexual violence in an armed conflict as a lived experience for herself and her community, um, it's it's her truth. If somebody is speaking about being um, an indigenous woman practicing food sovereignty, it's her truth. So I won't say that I go looking for topics. I go looking for things that the, the white supremacist industry <laughs> has stolen from us. <laughs> and restore the truth from people of color into those circles. Have you experienced a time where a collaborator, um, after sending you an article or send you, sending you an art piece, kinds of backtracks? Yes, and um, it is one of the processes that I have installed. So when I receive a piece or before I receive a piece, I say to them, this is not set in stone. If you've sent it to me and we've published it or we've publicized it after publishing it, it doesn't mean it has to stay there. Your safety is more important. Yeah. So if you come back to me within five minutes of me posting it, if you come back to me within three months of posting it, or you've come back to me after it's become viral and you tell me to take it down, you don't owe me a single reason I take it down. This has happened in the past. So I run a podcast called the CRSV Observatory Podcast where we talk about conflict-related sexual violence. Um, and I don't interview survivors because I don't believe in instrumentalizing their story or forcing them to perform that piece. But I speak with folks who are engaged in work in, on ground in those countries and communities who can talk about what happened and why the systems have brought us to that point. Um, twice over, there have been people who featured in the podcast who wrote in saying that They felt unsafe because their voices were easy to be uh, easy to identify in their community and asked if I might take it down. And what hurt me most in this was that they were apologetic about asking to prioritize their safety. Oh. Um, 
nobody nobody should apologize for asking to be safe nobody should apologize for asking for information to be retracted about them um if you have a right to publicity you have a right to censorship and mm. that is the right you have absolute agency over so personally i find myself in a bit of a paradoxical feeling right i feel sad that the system has put them in such a place that they have to ask to take it down um but i also feel happy that they feel safe enough to exercise that agency with me chicken and egg <laughs> how do you deal with that <laughs> you know i i had similar experiences with the podcast also with my other magazine my online magazine lumina where you know i have interviewed already scholars and experts on certain fields and after I interview them or when the interview is live they ask it to take it down for several reasons um the most prevalent one is the shame of of listening to the way that they speak the english language and i find that very very sad every time that i had that type of experience because you know i am not an expert on english language you know i'm using this podcast in a way to kind of get better at it um you know and if you have listened to my first episodes you will see like i made a lot of mistakes you know speaking english and you know i try to go you know away with it and now i'm trying to do video on with the english language and i am you know trying to surpass my fear of speaking english language you know the type of topics of ir without you know feeling shame but there's also this peer pressure that as women depending on where we are it may be more or it may be less or it may be different that we feel every time we talk about a topic that we consider our own you know we feel this peer pressure to do it perfectly or to speak it perfectly or to say a specific words in order to be validated by our peers and the moment that an episode of us talking about a specific topic gets out there we get a lot of fear of backlash or of also feeling guilty of having a different opinion over the mens- of over what the mainstream thinks and i i find it also very sad that there's a lot of shame and guilt involved in us trying to speak out and express our different ways of thinking that may you know contribute to move the needle forward not necessarily backwards you know like this you know making safe spaces for conversations are needed in order to build change if not then we are just going to be part of the herd all the time doing what xyz leader says you know like why you're absolutely right about that absolutely right especially when it comes to the feminist foreign policy enterprise as it were uh, because it has become that right it's a new different frontier yeah. to exhibit <laughs> capitalism and colonization uh, and i think this goes back to a conversation you and i had earlier natalia the whole point of seeing something as feminist and then going after the middle east in the next breath it's I don't understand that like the whole idea of first of all I think the state 
because of its inherent militarized masculinity, cannot be feminist. Um, and if amen, amen, sister, <laughs> it is that it is structure it is itself. This is the thing. Like you know, exactly. I said it all the time that I've you know taught this class of feminist theory in IR. This is the key aspect. She's amazing, by oh. the way. It is amazing. <laughs> Do you take it? Do you see it? I did. I love it. I have learned so much from it. Thank (laughs) you for it. To everybody who's listening, you have to sign up for the masterclass. Believe me. Thank you so much. (laughs) Natalia is undercharging you. She should be charging you three times what she's actually charging. You should definitely sign up. Please go ahead. Sorry, Natalia. No, 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 no. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, different, you know, I came to the topic of feminist theory in IR through my third documentary map. You know, I was working on gender-based violence, you know, reporting on gender-based violence, and I couldn't understand why the system was the way that it was. And feminist theory in in IR brought me a lot of answers. And, you know, through paternalistic or androcentric or anthropological views of power or state or system, etc., you can start seeing why women are you know, in this particular um, position of being subjected to so many types of violence. But the thing is that the feminisms as plural, as movements, as theories, as, you know, ways of advocacy or ways of expressing ourselves or even categories, because one can use it as a label to become, I'm a feminist. (laughs) And who are you, you know, Um, as flags of identity. Um, I know. They are so varied that sometimes they lose track of the structure itself. But That's if true. I say so, then I'm a radical feminist. And, you know, yeah. it's like you're so against the current and you're crazy lady. <laughs> oh, they, they, they have all the labels they need, right? But the same people will still say happy International Women's Day. Here's 10% off on your pizza. Um, charming things. But... You know, it, it, going back to the to the piece about the state being the entity that it is and cannot be feminist, I think what we see as feminist foreign policy wherever in the world at the moment is actually lipstick on a pig. Um, I cannot sit here and say to you that I feel impressed by Canada having adopted a feminist foreign policy because it's murdering and normalizing violence against indigenous women and supplying arms to several countries that are propping up wars. Um, Sweden may have rolled back the word feminist, but it's still doing the gender programming. So I recently had the chance to listen to Dr. Tony Harstrup from University of Stirling, and she actually said, at, at its base, feminist foreign policy will have some amount of programming relating to gender. Now, when we're thinking about it in that sense, Sweden is not doing anything different because its feminist enterprise did not go beyond gender. So are we really upset about losing the label? Because it goes back to what you said so beautifully, Natalia, the whole idea of using these words as labels very cleverly uh, without doing the work that it takes to question the systems that need to be questioned for these labels to not be labels, but to be real, solid, entrenched movements. Um I mean, it's 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 written. It's pretty much writing on but the wall. But also, is half the conversation. You know, like the whole priority of feminist foreign policy models are, you know, focusing a lot on women, 
particularly women from the global south to, you know, help them and, you know, bring more development and aid and defense and whatever it is. But they're not all not focusing on the other half, which is like, who are the perpetrators of violence? Why are we not talking about masculinities? Why are we not talking about, you know, the power dynamics and the gender relations and you know oh it's a heavy topic and we cannot talk about it but we can give money to feminist organizations in Africa or Latin America to do the job for us according to our view of the world that they need to follow suit so it's mm. you know the the coloniality is still present there you know like just exactly. do it as I say not as you want to do it because if not we're not going to give you the funding or you need to exactly. follow these specific programs and protocols if you want to do it your way. But you need to give me, I don't know, a thousand documents with, you know, hundred norms that you need to follow in order, you know, for us to back you. And yeah, it's it's like having contractors, <laughs> you know, do the job for you in, in Latin America or Asia or wherever. And, yeah. you know, you wash your hands saying that you did good, you know like without talking or addressing the white savior complex or mm -hmm. you know how you may be uh creating or reproducing power over other people absolutely absolutely but you know this speaks to the whole point of how women and the global south are seen as passive recipients of foreign policy and goes right back to the roots of westphalia right ironically nobody seems to be hearing the failure in westphalia by the way um but i to me that's a system that's like straight up dead on arrival because the idea of imposing one way of statecraft and that continues today so we're thinking about the 1600s and we're now in 2023 700 years of this BS, I mean, what is nobody really willing to see that the system is so irreparably broken? That enterprise, that whole systemic balance of oppressing one and then within that oppressing some even more is just the entire project on which colonialism furthers its existence, right? You throw money at women in a country that you will never visit or know the difference from another country from. And you think you've done your duty. And because you've helped women, you slap on the tag of feminist. You think you've done what you've, you, you think you're transformative. You're not. You're not looking at the root cause of everything that brought us to this point of egregious feeling. And, and what are your views of people that say that specifically by choosing feminist foreign policy models, states can be transformed into something else you know eventually they will lose that's uh, you know another line of thought of IR scholars in FFP saying that you know when states start choosing it en masse you know developing their own feminist foreign policy models the more that scholarship is done on it and you know the implementation results you know come give us more information on how, about how can it be done the system will transform completely you know like they they see it as a radical way of transforming the system and you know unlearning patriarchy or you know uh, tearing the system down do do you agree that ffps have that potential or do you see something else i don't have that optimism and let me try to give you an example here <laughs> so when covid struck um the first 
immediate sort of scientific response was to find a way to prevent or to contain the disease, right? So you had different agencies, different companies, different scientists who were looking into the vaccines. So you had Moderna and Pfizer in the US, and then you had a couple of other companies that looked into this, all of them in the global north. Now, they were not willing to distribute the know-how. They were not willing to distribute the 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 vaccines, like reduce the costs for the vaccines and make people in countries like your and mine actually access it sooner. It was like our lives mattered lesser than the lives of white people who had to get it first. So think about it like that. When that's the way they gatekeep, do you think a new policy will not be gatekept as well? I mean, there could probably be a new way of quote-unquote humanitarian intervention. It would be called a feminist intervention. But it will still be military. When we, when in 1994, they changed the idea of security by changing the referent object of the state to the human, with the UNDP's uh, report on human security, folks thought it was transformative that human rights was the center. But let's not forget that it was after that some of the worst crimes against humanity and genocides took place. The human rights project became another site of capitalism and colonization. So it's um it's been used as a way to call people who look like you and me uncivilized and barbaric for them, white people, to pursue a military agenda on our lands. It's a new way for them to entrench colonialism and practice it while coca-colonizing it. So if you're bringing McDonald's and Coca-Cola into my territory, I'm probably not going to think you're a colonizer. I'm going to see your country's media as my aspirational standard and forget about how you're messing with my system. Why do we think, why do we feel unreasonably optimistic about how they'll treat a feminist foreign policy? I just think that they will think more white women in policymaking in our countries would be feminist foreign policy. No, thank you. <laughs> and also the way that, you know, by having the presence of these countries, um, that choose FFP models, you know, having the presence can be a way also to protect and safeguard the people. And I, I, I see that troublesome as well, you know, like, oh, we are going to send you soldiers for, you know, because in an FFP model, we need to end violence against women and let's send our soldiers to Mali or to Algeria or to whatever, you know, let's help women there. Okay, and the violence against women and rebel groups and, you know, fight through the WPS agenda, help them have more spaces for peace negotiations or peace processes. That's good. But then their whole presence is also about protecting and safeguarding their interests. And they, there's not a conversation on the symbolic power that their presence has there. How can you as a person that live in, you know, countries that are receiving this type of aid or receiving these type of programs or changes or opportunities, you know, opportunities to study abroad or to, you know, work at a specific agency or, you know, to create social impact under, you know, the funding of Canada or France or Sweden or whatever, how can you say no to that if in your country perhaps you don't have more other opportunities of growth? You know, like, it's like um, there's a movie that I reviewed for the podcast, which was Misbehavior, I, I think it's called. Did you watch it? 
Not yet, not yet. Oh my but God, I, I do remember you talking about it. So, please so yeah, go do, ahead, go ahead. because it, that movie was, um, you know, it was the typical movie about a liberal feminist, liberal white feminists trying to change contests, beauty contests, because, you know, they are bad for women and the women are showcasing their bodies for the male gaze and all that, right? But then you had mo women from, you know, the Caribbean or Africa or Latin America that had this as their opportunity to be known, to be recognized, to gain a scholarship, to, you know, be wealthy or to gain a job, you know, something that perhaps in their own current circumstances, they don't have a chance to. So they join this type of beauty contest. And there's a moment in the in the uh, film, I'm not going to give you a spoiler, but please watch it. There's a moment in the film where these power dynamics get um, very clear, you know, like there's a... Uh, contestant of color that speaks to a white feminist that is you know very against the beauty pageant says saying you are messing with my chance of becoming somebody I don't have the luxuries that you have to get an education at University of Oxford or you know like or University of Harvard University or Columbia you know like these are the opportunities that are available in my country and I'm gonna make the best out of it and you know the whole conversation on how can we become more aware that our country's foreign policies are affecting the daily lives of other women around the world and then we think that we are liberating them or oppressing them, depending, because once again, this movie talks about, oh, beauty contests are oppressing women. Are they? You know, some of them feel like they are given the chance to liberate themselves and to right. become empowered. You know, like it depends on the view, but mm. it gives once again, the whole conversation of, it brings us once again to the conversation of the beginning, you know, like, is coloniality still it we is. are not breaking free from the coloniality of it all <laughs> you know? it's true it's really true but i think one point that i mean i completely agree with everything you said over there because what is quote-unquote perceived as oppressive by one is like you said perhaps the only way as an opportunity for some other but that's exactly the point, right? What is an opportunity for somebody? What is aspiration for somebody is still being co-opted by the system and weaponized against the person for whom it's an opportunity. For somebody, if being part of a beauty pageant is empowering, then they should be given free and full play for it to be empowering for themselves. The system cannot co-opt their bodies or make use of their bodies or their beauty or their identity in ways to further the system's needs. Now, I feel that's, the wound through which light can come in, if that makes sense. And the reason I say this is when we think about political leadership that is in the room making these conversations about aid, asking for certain amounts of money or certain forms of aid, the people making that conversation possible do not represent the people who need that aid. Which is which goes back again to what we talked about at the beginning, where as a peace educator, I was finding these transformative moments at the grassroots where people were so clear and had a perfect idea of what they wanted, but the system was refusing to deliver it to them. And how between the grassroots and the system, that continuum, something was getting lost. Um, 
what's getting lost is the transition from human wisdom into power. And those that hold power are just refusing whatsoever to redistribute that capital, to cede space. I mean, the whole idea, which again, wow, Natalia, this is becoming such a beautifully cyclical conversation, but it again goes back to the failures of the Westphalian system. The whole notion of quote-unquote democracy, of statehood, this heteropatriarchal, misogynistic, militarized, masculinist state project cannot see the last mile. It will not see the last mile. And so that difficult tightrope walk um, and this messy project that feminism is and will continue to be with all its feminisms is also in some ways because of the massive nature um, and, and how deeply entrenched the system we're fighting really is. We are reaching the end of this interview, and I want to focus specifically on feminist foreign policy and India. But before that, I just want to pinpoint that you have in your website a curated collection of understanding feminist foreign policy, and you have featured several um, experts on different parts of the world talking about their views on feminist foreign policy models. Um, can you share with us a very brief summary of perhaps some key highlights you know what was really beautiful in this series, Natalia, when we were talking to women um, who do not fall under the traditional confines of academia, right? So I'm talking about uh, Mukta Sri Chakma, who's, of course, practicing and working in the space of um, academia and activism in her own right. But uh, because of the way the system is skewed, you might listen to voices of maybe uh, a Cynthia Enlo over a Mukta Sri Chakma, right? Like that's the way the system is skewed, uh, which is not to question Cynthia Enlo and her brilliance, but you know what I mean. Now, the moment that really stood out for me was in all of these conversations, these women just started from a place of, but we've been doing feminist foreign policy all the time. This is life for us. Our grandmothers resisted colonialism. Our mothers have fought systems and structures that the Cold War brought on us. We continue to resist the system and its project and the many ways in which it crushes us. So what I found really striking was that these women talked about it as every day. It was not this exotified, beautifully packaged campaign of we're going to help women outside. No, it was a very powerfully articulated this is our agency and this is what we're doing and we're part of this world and we're engaging with the systems that the world has left us with. Uh, for me, that was a very, very huge point that really stood out. The other interesting point that also made, um, made itself apparent to me by the end of the series was knowledge production in the global south looks very different from the global north. Um, and I deliberately did not say quote unquote here because the global north expects you to conform to that. If yeah. you took a course in the UK, I studied in the UK, our dissertations probably looked like the same thing, though we were saying different things on different mm. topics. But the knowledge production that I saw over here, these women were living their stories. It was not presented to me in an academic formulaic format. It was presented as you and me talking here, like that conversation went everywhere. But there is something and a lot of those somethings for you to listen to. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was so beautiful for me because now the second second part is um, 
a work in progress and you and I are going to speak very soon for that as well. Um, what I'm really noticing is that we can redefine so much when we hold this space to redefine it with every intent and purpose to do that. Um, and I know that this is not going to be, I mean, in so many ways, what you and I are sowing the seed for may may arrive 300 years later. I don't know. Um, hopefully, this little moment might be captured in time. I don't know. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that it, we're willing to sow those seeds, Natalia. We're willing to to cut across borders and sow those seeds, no matter whether it helps nameless, faceless women we may never see or meet. But we care enough to do that, and that is enough of us that care enough to do it. So if Womanhood and IR and the Gender Security Project are two oases in a chaotic world that is trying to break our oases, so be it. I'll take it for what it's what it is, even if it's just two tiny spaces. It works. That's something beautiful. I have a similar experience in Latin America with um, feminismos comunitarios or community feminisms. Um, the way that knowledge is shared in safe spaces and women's circles, you know, gave me the uh, reassurance that thinking differently or behaving differently or acting differently is still valuable, you know, like there's value in other people's ways of thinking and ways of organizing social organizing or you know the way that they perceive policy or the way that they want to pursue action but it is through the willingness of creating a space creating an, a moment in time where we come together not as I am better than you and I have this label or I studied in this specific university therefore you need to give me a high share or you need to put the, the <laughs> I I, I uh, how is it I burn my lashes reading 10 years about this in order to get a PhD so you need to bow to me you know like there's nothing like that there's just a willingness of people to come together and build bridges of knowledge and from that bridge create something new together we may not be agreeing on the way that the yeah. other thinks but we may yeah. be agreeing on the way that we move forward and yeah. That's something that I find very valuable from my experience, at least in um, Latin America. But um, in the case of India, particularly, and what you were saying about feminist foreign policy being already um, implemented by women, <laughs> you know, not it's not a recent concept for women in India or also in Australia, because I interviewed um, representatives of the International Women's Development Agency, and they say that indigenous women in Australia believe that they have already done feminist foreign policy a, a long time ago before it was called that. You know? <laughs> like, so um, the way that, you know, indigenous people look at the state of the country that they're in is a type of feminist foreign policy model for them. And we these are conversations that are oblivious because we still look at the IR field as a state-centric field where the state is the primary actor and it shouldn't because people create states you know and that's something that we study in feminist theory and constructivist theory in IR but my point here is India which is so 
plurally diverse you know you have over a billion people population and you know you have so many tribes so many um different tongues and ways of thinking and ancestral wisdom of different currents like how is it um how how could it be possible to create a feminist foreign policy model for india that kind of embodies the diversity of its people I've always found it a bit difficult to answer um or even look at India as a single umbrella with many diversities within so that the single umbrella becomes the point for formula to be applied um because I feel that as many points of diversity as there are there are that many Indias within so when I'm sitting here speaking with you i represent a very small fraction of india and what i represent is upper caste south indian tamil south indian english speaking um with a disability but cis het and speaking the colonizer's tongue um with significant exposure globally I don't represent India and I can't claim to believe that a single feminist foreign policy could ever represent India or the variety that India has. Um now it is beautiful to look at so much diversity within a country and say that that is a rich tapestry definitely 100% it is it is beautiful to admire but is everybody every thread making that tapestry feeling safe included is that diversity respected by the other threads no and until we come to the point where we within ourselves acknowledge and respect our diversity um i mean right now as we speak there's so many points on which the country is fractured identity being one of the key areas on which um violence is normalized on which wars are waged on which ideologies are built and alignments are expected uh it is also the single most area where politics starting from colonial british rule has practiced and normalized divide and rule that continues to exacerbate divisions that already existed before divide and rule began so in such a fragmented space i think the first step we need is collective communal justice um a kind of justice that acknowledges what we've done to ourselves first what did we do to ourselves that became a point of power accretion for those that invaded us with colonization and what has that continued to inform as violence and pain in this community today uh it is very easy to say that a country can have a feminist foreign policy and i don't even believe that puerto rico can have one feminist foreign policy because there are that many feminisms there are that many identities even there even if our diversity levels look different on paper so i personally believe that the idea of a feminist foreign policy is a citizen civilian not even a citizen a civilian led endeavor groups of women that align representing that alignment in relation to one another and i start with women because bring men into the picture and they will elbow the women out and still call it feminist for themselves um we've seen that happen now this is not to mean uh that i'm choosing to be essentialist over here 
but that these voices have been women, queer, non-binary voices have been marginalized enough for us to know that solutions that exist among these voices will get us out of the hellhole we are trapped in. And beyond that, we'll have to mobilize to find ways. That's a future project. So to answer your question, I think we have to start with a place where we acknowledge what we have done to ourselves and then invite every actor for whom a feminist foreign policy will make a difference from their own agency to participate in framing what that policy would look like for themselves. But then, you know, when we are talking about foreign policy, we are talking about other countries, the relation as well of India with other countries. How can um, these conversations with women or people from other countries happen? Um, or, you know, that it will be a long endeavor in order to achieve their representation. It will. It will. And I'm not negating the fact that it will be a long endeavor. And in fact, it's a beautiful thing that it will be a long endeavor because good things that need to be entrenched need to come at the cost of the bad things that have to be disentrenched, if that's a word. And that takes time and justice and healing. Now, if we are going to say that this needs to be done quickly, then we're just going to say feminist foreign policy. We're already adopting it. We have women in office. We have a female defense minister or a female finance minister, and we've achieved it, which is, as you and I know, is not feminist foreign policy. But that said, I want to go back to a point I made earlier, which was that my personal belief is that a feminist foreign policy is and has to be civilian-led. Um, you and I are talking about things that are confronting people in our country, including us, and we're not from the same country. We're mobilizing across borders. We may not adopt a decision point, but something we've shared today might change the way we look at things, the way we mobilize, or the information we're able to pass on to our communities, which creates a ripple effect. Just think about it. We talked about women in multinational corporations that are working as cheap labor in countries like ours. Now, if these women upped and left, if they chose not to put in even a day's labor, that's that much of a loss that these companies will face in their stock exchange. Real power does exist here, but not with the knowledge or cognition that it exists. So if you and I could have this conversation, and then you've made me see that these women are sites of power, and I take this information to them, isn't that a point for us to begin engaging in activist endeavors to question this state? for what it has brought us to. I know this is a bit of a utopian idea. And I know that, I mean, a lot of people when I have shared this idea with have like raised one eyebrow to look at me with perhaps, should I recommend therapy to this girl, whatever. Um, but <laughs> I think if the ones among us that are willing no longer to be round pegs and round holes, and are willing to cut new holes out of those round holes and shapes that suit us, then that's where the change begins. There's a huge point of reflection there, you know, in terms of the collective healing that needs to happen domestically in order for it to be externalized then to a foreign policy. And it seems that that conversation domestically gets you know, hampered because it's like, no, we don't mix the two. But as you said, if there's not a conversation within, then how can a 
a foreign policy or a, a policy abroad be exemplified or be uh, a good symbol of what the true population of India or any other country believes in, you know, like, and I, I do think that there's a peril into foreign policy making in terms of FFPs, because it seems that there's, a, how is it? a very beautiful norm of this is a feminist foreign policy model if it has this checklist. If you follow the checklist, then you're a feminist foreign policy. And, you know, there's still research underway, still a very innovative term. And, you know, there needs to be time and space to figure out how can it be best implemented. And of course, there's room for error and to learn and all that. But, um, an exercise of self-reflection and domestic um, collective consciousness reflection or needs mm -hmm. to happen. And mm -hmm. I don't think that goes around in FFP model yeah. um, environment enabling, you know, enabling environments. Um, okay, so let's uh finish this interview giving mm -hmm. some advice to our listeners <laughs> um particularly to those women out there that are from the global south perhaps or from the global north listening seeking ways to break quote unquote the spell or the heavy de dependency of this coloniality of knowledge production or reproduction what are some ways to start either if you are from the global north or from the global south from your point of view what are some good ways to start breaking this pattern of coloniality of knowledge and reproduction i'm gonna give you six points number one sign up for natalia's masterclass Number two, follow this podcast and listen to it with your families, just like I do in the mornings. <sighs> no, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And I'll tell you why. Number three, please follow the Gender Security Project. Now, the reason That's the number I one. <laughs> <laughs> that is very kind of you. Um, the reasons I'm, I shared these three pieces actually are the next three pieces that I'm going to share. Number one, we need points that invite us to, to, to reflect and introspect. Introspection and reflection does not happen from within. We need a catalyst from outside. And if you can cultivate an engagement with a catalyst regularly, you're willing to reflect and introspect. When I say reflect and introspect, point number five here is it's not about you, the person being wrong. It's not about your identities being flawed it is about the context and how you show up in those contexts so are you a person from the global north showing up in a context that involves limited space and are you choosing to hold on to the mic and make it about yourself or are you choosing to cede space and pass the mic on to voices that should be heard that's the point of reflection and introspection that you need to engage in and when you do that when you come to understand that you stand in certain lines Think about ways in which you can find behavioral shifts, ways in which you can redistribute social capital, ways in which you can make um, possible things that are very natural and normal for you, for those for whom it's not natural and normal. And that brings me to the final point, which is never stop asking questions. 
if you've assumed that something is perfectly true and acceptable, you're also closing the door to growth. Not just your growth, but the system's growth itself. The system is perfectly happy being complacent and lazy and where it is stuck. If you ask it questions, it might fight you, but it begins to break at some point. And that that's all that lies between us and normalizing a failed system as the only one and the only option that we can turn to. Before I sound like unreasonably preachy, I will stop. No, no, no. Um, how can we follow your work? Please do share, Kirthi. How can we follow your uh, work on social media? Um, what are your current or future projects? And if people want to join the Gender Security Project and want to collaborate, like what are some ways to, to start? Of course, uh, you can definitely read um, the articles that we put up on our website. That's www.gendersecurityproject.com. We're very smart on Instagram and LinkedIn. Most other forms of social media escape me. I'm very slow on it. Uh, but do follow us on Instagram as the Gender Security Project and on LinkedIn as well. Uh, we also have uh, a podcast called the CRSV Observatory Podcast, which is um, intended to document through an alternative form instead of writing uh, the prevalence of conflict-related sexual violence um, across the world and across time. And in the next few months, we're, you're, you're going to see a couple more projects come from us. Number one is part two of the Understanding Feminist Foreign Policy series, where we're focusing on uh, multilateral processes. And Natalia, who will be one of our guests very soon on the series, um, and then there's also going to be an academy. We're opening up an academy at the Gender Security Project with really tiny, easy to consume courses at nominal rates. And the intention is to look at themes around women, peace and security and feminist foreign policy. And finally, there's going to be an exciting collaboration with Natalia, but we will not talk about it now. We'll talk about it when the time comes, but so excited for that. Yes, we are going to give you spoilers soon, but not now. <laughs> um, Kirthi, thank you so much for all the work that you do. And thank you so much for joining this podcast. I invite everybody to check all the different links that we're going to feature down below on the description box of today's episode. And to follow Kirthi and the Gender Security Program on their social media for more information. Kirthi, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Natalia. I'm really excited for all that's to come. Good luck with everything.